0: John five sixteen and we will We'll read to the end of the chapter. So, this is, we're picking it up right after uh, Jesus heals uh, an invalid. He commands him to take up his bed and, and walk. Jesus, he performs his healing on the Sabbath, and this man gets up, takes up to bed his mat, and he walks, and then he's confronted by the Pharisees who asked him who was the one who told him to take up his bed and walk, and then he points them to Jesus. And so that's kind of where we're picking it up in verse 16 of John chapter 5. It says, and this was why the Jews or the Pharisees or the religious teachers were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we we just ha- echo the words of Peter who said, where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, because your words are true, because your words are eternal life, help us to hang on every word that comes from your lips. You yourself say that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Lord, so we pray that you would feed us your word this morning that it would sustain us, that it would nourish us, and that it would cause us to grow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ambassadors have a unique position. An ambassador is an elected official who is sent to a foreign country to represent his host country, and he serves on the country's behalf. And part of the job of an ambassador is to deliver a message. And one writer says, particularly about this this function of his position, one writer says that ambassadors must get the message right, cannot change the message, and cannot leave the message undelivered. Now, one of the unique benefits, or one of the unique privileges that I've found that are are specific to an official ambassador is that he or she has diplomatic immunity. So, for example, at a, US, a U.S. ambassador, so any ambassador who comes from a different country and comes to the United States cannot, cannot be arrested, cannot be detained, cannot be subpoenaed as a witness, cannot even be prosecuted. But, interestingly, they can be issued a traffic violation. Now with regards to his credentials an ambassador has carries a, a sealed original and an unsealed copy of a diplomatic letter that is presented to the head of state and in this unsealed letter is addressed to this individual to the head of state asking him to give credence to whatever the to whatever the ambassador says on behalf of his country So as I mentioned earlier last week we read about the healing of the invalid which brings us now to this conversation between Jesus and the religious teachers And according to the teachers, Jesus has violated the Sabbath, not only commanding a person to take up his mat on the Sabbath, but he has also performed a healing on the Sabbath, which they considered as work. And so it becomes a question of authority. So by what authority can Jesus do these things or command people to do these things on the Sabbath? So just as as an ambassador, by the nature of his position, comes with great authority, so Jesus has great authority that comes not from a a title, but through a relationship with the one who sent him, and that is God. So as we work through the passage, what I hope to show you is that through the divinity, through the authority, through the witnesses of Jesus, we'll see why Jesus' authority can supersede that of the scribes and the religious teachers. So verse 16 tells us that this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things or performing these healings on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him. So what started out as, a, as persecu- uh, persecution towards Jesus for performing this healing on the Sabbath has now evolved into a desire to kill Jesus because he makes himself out to be equal with God, calling God his own father. Now, Jewish rabbis have always understood that there is only one person who can work on the Sabbath, and that is God. Even though we read in Genesis that God rested on the seventh day, but the Jewish rabbis always understood that there is still a work of sustaining and maintaining creation. And so God never ceases that work, even on the Sabbath. And so when Jesus says that even though when His Father's working and that He is working, He is, he is essentially making Himself out to be equal with God. Before Jesus came to earth, and maybe even before, or maybe even during His ministry, there were many upon many individuals who claimed to be the Messiah, the one who is anointed by God, sent by God to deliver God's people from Roman oppression and rule, which is a flawed understanding of the role of the Messiah. But what said Jesus, apart from all these other false messiahs, is that Jesus claimed to be divine. I mean, He calls God His own Father and hence why the teachers wanted to then kill Jesus. And to help them understand, Jesus tells them that He's only doing what His Father is doing. Jesus is functioning as as sort of as an ambassador. He's not doing whatever He pleases, but He's only doing what His Father wills. So all the signs, all the miracles, all the healings, all the words, everything that Jesus has done is because that is what the Father willed. So last week, if you remember, if you were here, we walked through the passage of the healing of the invalid, and, and in that passage, it doesn't tell us what exactly, what exactly was it about this particular invalid that, that, was, uh, that drew Jesus to him, right? There was plenty of other people around that needed healing, but Jesus was only drawn to this one man. He came to him, he asked him, he, he, he healed him. And we have no idea what was it about this man that Jesus, that, that, stood, out to, that stood out. But here, and reading what Jesus says in response to the Pharisees who wanted to kill him, we understand now that the reason why Jesus healed that man is because that is what the Father willed. That is what the Father, God the Father wanted. So then, between Jesus and between the Son, between God the Father, there is this this harmony, there's this unity of wills. They both have the same will. In John 8:28, Jesus says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. Then in John 14:10, Jesus says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus only does what the Father wills. D.A. Carson says it like this, The God the Father initiates, he sends, commands, commissions, and grants. The Son responds, obeys, performs the Father's will, receives authority. So in this sense, the Son is the Father's agent. Now, Let me read to you how one writer describes the relationship in Jewish culture between a father and a son, which I think will give us a more intimate picture of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. In Jewish society, the mother had the primary charge of all the children from their birth until approximately five to seven years of age. At that time, care of the boys would pass from the mother to the father. That meant that he would live his life with his father, not that they were two separate households, not that they were divorced, but the primary charge, but the primary care transferred from the mother to the father. And the son would work along with his father, helping him and thereby gradually learning farming or his father's trade. During that time, the father would form his son as a man. He would raise his son in his own presence and teach him all that he knew. In fact, much of the son's training would consist of his father's example the son this is where this is where it relates to what Jesus is talking about the son would see what the father was doing and would thus learn what the father knew so please hear me clearly that this is not intended to be an analogy between how the father and the son relate to one another or even how they have functioned Throughout all, throughout all of eternity. It's not that God the Son was born at some point and God the Father raised Him up. That's not, what, that's not the point. But the, point I'm, the reason why I'm reading that to you because I think it helps to show the unique relationship between the Father and the Son. Just as in Jewish culture, the Son would be raised by the Father and the Son would learn the trade of His Father and would learn from, exam, from His example. He would only do what His father's doing. So Jesus says that He only does what the Father does. That there's not two separate persons, there's not two separate... Well, there's are two separate persons because God the Father and God the Son, but there's not two separate wills, one will, because Jesus is only doing what the Father desires and what the Father wants Him to do. And so, He shows that, there's, that there is this unique relationship that Jesus enjoys with God the Father. And He goes even further and says that even greater works will the Father show the Son which is another thing that both Jesus and God the Father share, and, 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 th- and that is that they are both givers of life. Both God and Jesus give life. So Jesus continues to, to, to impress upon them this, this equality that he enjoys with God. He says that, 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 that just as God gives life and has life in himself, so the Son also has life in himself. In 1 Samuel 2.6, it says that the Lord kills and brings to life. In 2 Kings 5, Naaman was a leper, but he was a commander of the, of the armies of Syria, and he was also, but he was also favored by the Lord. And then the king of Syria, having heard that he could actually be healed in Israel by a prophet, well, he sends Naaman with a letter to the king of Israel. And in the letter, it says in 2 Kings 5, 6, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? So the king of Israel is baffled. He says, am I God to be able to kill and to bring to life that I could have the power to cure this man of his leprosy? The answer is no, I don't have the power. But they've understood that God is the only one who can give life. So Jesus is saying, I also can give life because that's been granted to me by the Father. Jesus is making himself out to be equal with God by his his being able to give life to whom he wills. Remember, Jesus, when we read in John 3, right, the, the story of the Samaritan woman, Jesus offered her eternal life and gave her eternal life and to the villagers. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus gives life. He gives spiritual life. He gives eternal life to those who choose him, to those who follow him. Not only that, but he gives physical life. I mean, later on, we'll see that Jesus resurrects people to new life but he gives physical life, and we can't help but remember the story of Lazarus, right? Lazarus was dead for four days, and Jesus comes, and he says, Lazarus, come forth, and suddenly Lazarus comes out of the tomb, and he's alive. Jesus says in 1125, in John 1125, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus is the author of life. Jesus gives life. Jesus gives eternal life to whomever he wills, and he has given it to those who believe and trust in him. He gives eternal life. And even that sign that his raising of lazarus from the dead jesus only did because that is what the father's that's what the father's will was the father and the son have this perfect perfect unity and that is evidence of the divinity of jesus and then next jesus jesus not only points to his own divinity being equal with god but jesus also points to his authority so in verse 22 of our passage, it says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. An ambassador is considered almost equal to the one who sent him and also shares in a high level of authority and it is an authority that is granted to him by the one who sent him. So then continuing in his response to these religious teachers, Jesus claims to have an authority of God and he claims to have this authority because this is an authority that has been granted to him by God. God is the one who gave it to him. But this analogy of, of an ambassador, of Jesus' function as an ambassador, it's kind of it's beginning to break down, right? The, the authority is the same, but Jesus goes even further. Because the analogy breaks down when Jesus says that it has been granted to him to give life to whom he wills, and that all judgment has been granted to the Son. And for what purpose? It's so that all may honor the Son, so that all may honor Jesus Christ. So God the Father has not only transferred authority to His Son to judge, but He has also made it so that Jesus is the main focus of all glory and worship, of all honor. And that is why we must aim to be Christ-centered when we come every single Sunday to worship the Lord. Not only that, but it is why you must also in your own personal lives strive to be Christ-centered as well, because that is the way that God had made it. He wants all the honor to be given to the Son. And God, so God has shows himself to be Christ-centered by making Jesus the pinnacle of our worship and all the honor and all the praise. And God shows himself to be God-centered when he lifts up Jesus Christ to be the focus of all honor because there is no way that we can honor God apart from honoring the Son. So all the honor that God receives must come through Jesus Christ. And so in order for God to be most glorified, in us that we must strive to be Christ-centered, that we must aim to, be, to glorify Jesus Christ. And hence why Jesus says that whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. It is impossible to bring glory and honor to God apart from Jesus Christ. John fifteen twenty-three. Jesus says, whoever hates me hates my Father also. So whoever hates the Son hates the Father also. So then going back to Jesus' judgment, the judgment that Jesus is referring to is a future judgment. And that is based on on a person's profession of faith today and the person's life based on that faith. So whoever hears the voice of Christ with the intention of obedience and of following Jesus Christ will receive complete immunity on that day of judgment. And then Romans 8.32 is going to apply to you, which says, He, that is God, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. What that means is that no charges... You can't be prosecuted, you can't be subpoenaed, you can't brought, be brought into questioning. Not even so much as the traffic ticket will be on your record. You'll be totally blameless, totally innocent, and totally righteous because of Jesus Christ. Now, those who don't respond to the voice of Christ in faith and obedience, Jesus says, will not be spared. The alternative is death. Remember what Jesus said to the healed man that we looked at last week. We, look at, we took a look at Jesus' ominous statement to that healed man after having been healed. He says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Judgment and death is that worse thing that Jesus is referring to. So if you have yet, if you're here this morning, you have yet to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to know that the voice of Christ is speaking to you this morning. And it is coming through His divine word. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to our earth, lived as a man, lived in perfect obedience to the Father, and then died on the cross for our sins, receiving the penalty that we deserved. And then He was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God for our forgiveness so that all those who place their faith and trust upon Jesus Christ will receive complete immunity on that final day of judgment. They cannot be condemned, they cannot be brought into question, and they cannot be prosecuted. So the Lord wants you to hear His voice and to respond in faith and obedience. He wants you to believe in Him and to follow Him. Because on this final day, Jesus will render a just judgment. In verse 20, verse 26 Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. So, a few different things about this judgment that Jesus is going to execute on this day that we know not when will come. First is that it is grounded on his being the son of man. Verse 27 says that Jesus has been given the authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. And Jesus is probably thinking about the book of Daniel and Daniel's apocalyptic vision of this one who is described as the son of man. In Daniel seven thirteen, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this one of man, this one that this prophecy describes is not just a human being, because it describes this person as one who is sort of divine, yet appears to be like us. It is to him that has been granted to him by the ancient of day, that is God, has been granted him this complete and total dominion and authority. And so Jesus says that he is that son of man, and that is the reason why he can have the authority to execute this judgment because it's been granted to him by God. Not only that, but as the Son of Man, as, the, as one who is like you and I in every single way, yet unlike us because he perfectly obeyed the Father's commandments and will and not once has he ever sinned. He succeeded where we have failed and we, where, we, where we continue to fail time and time again. But the fact that by, by the virtue of his perfect obedience that grants him the authority to be our and everyone else's judge. And his judgment will be a fair judgment. In the end, there will be a resurrection of life and a resurrection of death. And the work that one has done will determine where that person ends up for their final destiny. Right? And, but the, we need to be clear because we understand that this Bible teaches that, that we are saved by faith alone, apart from works, right? It's not our works that save us. It's our faith in Jesus Christ that saves us. And so what is this, all this talk about being that, about our being resurrected to life or death, depending on good works or depending on evil? Now, yes, right, the Bible teaches that we are saved by faith alone, apart from works. But if we also take, for example, the book of James, which says, that that faith, which, which the book of James affirms that we are saved by faith alone, but it says that it is a faith that, is never, that never remains alone, then what Jesus means is that those who will be resurrected to life are those who place their faith in Jesus and their life bears fruit of that genuine faith in Jesus Christ. While those who never profess faith in Christ will be resurrected to an eternal death. So in short, you might say that Jesus will judge According to one's good work of a genuine profession of faith. Further, in the end, Jesus, Jesus will only be mediating the Father's will. And that also makes it a just judgment. Remember that Jesus' will is not to do his own thing, but to do the will of him who sent him. And Jesus is the mediator of God's judgment, but he's not the one who set the standard for that judgment. God gave his people, in the Old Testament, God gave his people the commandments, right? And he established that if you are to be blessed, then you must obey. And if you do not obey, well, then there's curse. And now Jesus has come, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so, Jesus completely and perfectly fulfills the commandments of the Lord, And now Jesus says that the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the only way to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is to do it through the Son, through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the mediator of God's judgment. And lastly, and jesus just continues to point to his to his equality with god by pointing to his divinity by pointing to his authority that is granted to him by god to execute this judgment to give life he gives them one point of uh, one last point of persuasion and he directs them to five five witnesses of his person of his identity so verse 31 Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Verse 37, and the Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So Jesus is talking about the testimony of God the Father. Now, two vivid examples that we might think of when it, comes God to, when it comes to God's evidence or God's witness of Jesus Christ as His own Son, we might think of Jesus emerging from the waters of baptism, and the voice from heaven cries out saying that, this is my beloved Son. And another example we might think of is when Peter, James, and John are in the mountain, right, and they the, the, the witness a transfiguration of Jesus, uh, robed and splendored, and then the voice says from heaven, which is God, says that, this is my beloved Son, listen to Him. Those are two vivid examples of God bearing witness that this is His Son. However, I don't think that this is what Jesus is referring to in this passage because obviously the the religious teachers weren't there to witness this this transfiguration of Jesus and they may not have been there when, when Jesus was baptized to hear this voice from heaven. But rather, Jesus is referring to His works, to all His signs, to His miracles, and to His words. Jesus heals only those that the Father wills, and in his, in his ambassador-like function, He only speaks the words of God. So, Jesus is pointing them to God. Look to God. God is bearing witness that I am the Son, that I have divinity, that I have authority. And if that's not enough, Jesus also points them to another witness, and that is John the Baptist. He says in verse 33, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So we spent, as we've been walking through the book of John, we spent a considerable amount of time looking at the ministry of John the Baptist. John is described as a witness to the light, and that light is Jesus Christ. We saw it in chapter 1. John also, when he sees Jesus, he points his, he points his disciples To Jesus says behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world not only that but John also continues to point to Jesus Christ he says that this is the one who has greater authority than I do because he was before me he points to Jesus as the bridegroom who comes from heaven so he's always consistently pointing to Jesus Christ crowds are always coming to John the Baptist going out of the way to hear the preaching of John the Baptist and John is always directing people's attention to Jesus And if that's not enough, Jesus also gives them another witness, and that is the works. Jesus' signs and his works function as, as witnesses to his divine authority and identity. Later in John chapter 10, Jesus says to religious teachers Even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So the works show that the Father's seal is upon His Son. The works function as sort of like this, the unsealed official letter of His credentials to the watching world. Then fourth, Jesus points to the testimony of the Scriptures. Verse 39, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. I don't receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. So everything written in the Scriptures, including the Old Testament, points to Jesus Christ. Religious teachers, they were, they were masters of the Scriptures. There's nobody who knew the Scriptures better than they did, and yet they missed the entire point of the Scriptures. One commentator says that there's, that there's, there's nothing life-giving about the scriptures, if one fails to discern their true content. I know a guy who purchased a car and he had it parked in, in, in the front of his house and he was always cleaning it, he's always tidying it up inside and outside. He shovels it out of the snow in the wintertime, like we would with our vehicles. He installed a, a cool and nice uh, new radio system into his car but he doesn't drive the car. You're kind of missing the point, right? The point of a car is to drive the car, right? To get from A to B, right? Now, to be fair, the reason why he kidded, he, he wasn't driving his car was, was because he kept driving, failing his driver's license test. But, but that's, kind of, that's kind of what I picture when I think of the Pharisees. Right? They're diligent studiers of the Word of God. They're always studying and looking to it Even pointing people to it, they know all, they know the context, they know everything about it, but they missed the entire point of the Scriptures because they missed Jesus. Jesus is the point of the Scriptures. That means that there's a lot of people who will be resurrected to this, this eternal death, who knew the Scriptures well, but they never ever got the point of the Scriptures, that is Jesus Christ. The Scriptures are intended to point to the Messiah. The Messiah, who, by the way, is standing right in front of the religious teachers. The point of the Scriptures is Jesus. And then the fifth witness is Moses. Jesus says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? To the religious teachers, aside from God, there was no one greater than Moses. And In the Gospels, if you read through the Gospel, they always kind of seem to be pitting Moses against Jesus. Moses said this, Moses did that. But here, Jesus saying, Moses actually wrote of me. And if you actually believe the writings of Moses, then you would believe me as well. Because even Moses prophesied about this greater prophet who was going to come, and that prophet is Jesus Christ. And hence why he tells them that you do not have the love of God within you. You don't love God. Because if you loved God, then you would love me also because I am from God, I come from God, I come on behalf of God, I come to reveal God, I come to teach people about God, I come to provide a way for people to come to God. But you don't believe me. And If you don't believe me, then you don't believe the one who sent me, that's what Jesus says. All of these witnesses point to the divinity and the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, describing Jesus' ambassadorial role, kind of the similarities and the differences, here's one other passage that you should consider. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. The Scriptures call us as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And as ambassadors of Christ, we've been given a message that must be delivered, cannot be altered, and that we have to get right. And anyone who does not receive this message, it's not, it's not that they're not receiving us, they're not, it's, it's that they are not receiving the one who sent us. Right, we're just ambassadors. Just as Jesus was an ambassador, whoever doesn't believe him does not believe in the Father. Whoever, when we proclaim this message as ambassadors, it's not that when people refuse it, it's not that they refuse us, they are refusing the one who sent us. And whoever received this message is not that they were receiving us, but they are receiving the one who sent us. Our only job is to deliver the message, this message of reconciliation to all those who need to be reconciled to God. Right, and I know that it's hard, right? If there's anybody who understood the difficulty of this task was Jesus because Jesus stayed faithful to this message and it cost him his life. And I'm not saying that it'll cost you your life to proclaim the gospel. Don't understand that. Don't see that as my, don't understand that as my saying that to you at all. But I know that it is difficult. But just remember that all you're doing is proclaiming the message. And if anyone hates the message, it's not that they are hating you. Jesus says that it's they're hating the one who sent you. The thing about ambassadors is that they remain in a foreign country for an extended period of time. They continue to deliver the message, represent his country, speak on behalf of the one who sent him. The most effective way of delivering a message to those who need to to hear is to remain with them. It's important to build relationships with people, with neighbors, with coworkers, with even your Starbucks barista establish trust in order to create these opportunities to share the gospel and continue to share the gospel as long as they are willing to hear. At the end of the day, remember that they, if there's rejection, it's not that they're rejecting you, they're rejecting the one who sent you. And the encouraging thing is, is that you don't have to go it alone. You have a wealth of help sitting right here. So if you're trying to, say, engage with your neighbor and, start, and try to establish a relationship with your neighbor, there's nothing in the Bible that says that you have to do it alone. Right? It's easy to just invite another brother or sister to come alongside you, to just say, like, I'm inviting my neighbor over, trying to establish some trust and relationship with the neighbor, and would you help carry this, this burden with me? Right? There's nothing about evangelism that says that we have to do it by ourselves. Like we are the church, and we do evangelism together. So whether that's with a neighbor or coworker or whoever, right? That's a responsibility we don't have to take by ourselves. That we can help one another, because if we can, if we're honest, right? It's a it's a difficult task. It's a task that seems like it's, in a ways, it is bigger than ourselves. But that is why the Lord calls not just one individual, but he calls a church to be witnesses of the gospel, to be witnesses together. The important thing is, is that we deliver the message. Ambassadors are responsible for managing an embassy, which could employ as as, as many as a few hundred individuals. And that's why an ambassador is also known as a chief of mission. You and I have been employed by the chief of mission to function as his ambassadors to proclaim the gospel to the world, to people who still need to be reconciled to God. It's a wonderful and it's a glorious message. I mean, you're here. Many of you are here because of the gospel message. We come here every single week to, to glorify Jesus Christ for this message, to remember this message. Music uh-huh.